God's covenant with Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Abram brought all this to him. Bring me to the heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Going to chapter 17, or 15, 17, verses 1 through 8. The covenant of circumcision. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between you, me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God." This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I want to invite you to take out the sermon notes that are there, as you can uh, follow along this morning a little bit, and also jot some things down, a little review from last time, because we're just beginning to scratch the surface of our exploration of the Bible through the lens of the twin themes of covenant and kingdom. Covenant, again, you'll remember, is about relationship, how we're in relationship with God and with others. We are created, as we've learned, in the image of a relational, the triune God, and therefore we are made for relationship with this God and with each other. The rhythm of covenant, as we've learned it, begins with the understanding of God as our Father. This is our primary relationship in life. How we picture God 
affects how we see ourselves as well as the people around us. Out of a healthy understanding of God as our Father, we discover our identity. Our identity is that we are His children. From the security and confidence of our identity as children of our Father, we find our purpose to represent our Dad, His name, His interests, faithfully. And to fulfill our purpose, we need to live in dependence upon our Father's guidance and instruction. In other words, our obedience, our actions come out of our sense of identity. As we looked at last week, sin is when we get it backwards. Sin is when our driving motivation or momentum in life is living independently of our Father. We can be tempted. Sometimes we are even taught to believe the lie that independence is freedom. But the problem of sin is the inversion of the covenant. All of our actions, all that we live for, are about creating or validating our identity when we live the inversion of the covenant. All of our actions, all that we live for is about creating or validating our identity. We become defined by what we do, by what we control, and or by what others say about us. And our relationships, therefore, in life are tentative and insecure because we are always changing who we are in order to fit in, in order to be accepted, in order to belong. Living as if we were fatherless when it comes to God impacts everything, everything in our lives, every relationship, every action. And we ended last week at a somber look at the chapters after chapter 3 in Genesis of how we see that play out. But as we come back to Genesis this morning, as we come back to this understanding of covenant, we see that God doesn't give up on humanity. We may choose to live outside the covenant. We may choose to deny the relationship that we have with God as our Father. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is null and void. The Lord offers us a lifeline, a way back into covenant through a man named Abram. Now, we came in the middle of the story, but if you're familiar at all with Abram, Abram is a man who, prior to his encounter with God, is living the inversion of the covenant, as we discussed it last week. He's living the inversion of the covenant. The world that he lived in was tribal-based. Meaning that in your day-to-day life, you worked and kept within your own clan, with your own people. Engaging the world outside your tribe was less stable and more uncertain. Being outside your clan, going outside your people, involved constant bartering and negotiation. So you could say that Abram grew up in the world of let's make a deal. Relationships were based on promises, but talk was often cheap. So there was always a longing in Abraham's time for security, a push during Abram's day for assurances that deals made would be deals kept. And like most of the people his day, Abram was polytheistic, which means he worshipped many gods. Everything in his life, therefore, was always in flux. Everything shifted in his life depending upon which god he was appealing to. Which God he needed assistance from. There were lots of sacrifices that had to be made to keep the various gods pleased with you. In both cases, with gods and men, Abram's actions, what he had to offer, what he was he willing to sacrifice, Abram's actions defined his identity and shaped his relationships. 
the inversion of covenant. Beloved, our times are not much different than Abram's, even though they're much, much, that's long ago. Our times are not much different. Most of us are still living the inversion too. We tend not to be as polytheistic as Abram, believing in multiple gods, as the people in Abram's day did, but our tendency to bow down before multiple gods is no less commonplace. Functionally, practically, our attention and devotion shifts among many counterfeit gods. We sacrifice daily, just as they did, but in a different way. We sacrifice daily our time and our resources in the belief that if we appease the gods of money, sex, and power, we will have contented lives, happy marriages, and successful children and careers. Too many of us are living the inversion just like Abraham. Our purpose in life, our relationships with each other are about trying to create or justify our identity. It's based upon what we do, our productivity. It's based upon what we have control over, our power. It's based upon what others say about us, our reputation. And in such an unstable and ever-changing world, just like Abram's, we tend to, just like Abram, stick with our own people. We stay within our own tribe as well. Because living outside our circle, life outside our circle, can often be unpredictable and insecure. Think about it. More and more, I see it, we live in a society based on suspicion. That's our operating principle in the world in which we live. Suspicion. We are always wondering if we can trust the other person that we encounter. Do they really mean what they say? Will they really follow through on what they promise? Our fears and assumptions with these kind of questions going on in our heads, just like Abram, lead us to doing a lot of wheeling and dealing as well. It's all about what have you done for me lately? We make lots of promises in our day and age. We say lots of things we frankly don't mean. And our default position is to assume that the other person is lying just to have an advantage over us. If we have any doubts about this, let's look at our politicians right now. The two men vying for the vote to be the leader of the free world, every time they speak, we need fact checkers to vet every word they say, every promise they make. As we make deals with each other, we long for a guarantee. We long for a guarantee that gives us freedom, the freedom and security to rely on each other. And the outworking of that in our lives, as I briefly alluded to last week, is we create contracts. We live in a contract-based world. Contracts exist, think about it, contracts exist, why? To limit liability and maximize profitability. Contracts are built on the assumption, in our day and age, they're built on the assumption of the worst that can happen. How can I get burned here? Where do I need to protect myself? What will I get out of this deal to make it worth my time and my investment? If this doesn't work out, what's the minimum I can lose in this deal? What can I be guaranteed to walk away with? More and more, even within our families and our friendships, let alone outside of our clan, with acquaintances and strangers, more and more in our families and our friendships, our relationships are based on these kind of questions. And so like Abram, we find ourselves in the midst of an inverted world, struggling with lives that are running in circles. We work so hard. We have so much. 
And yet we are so defensive. We are so insecure. We feel so trapped. In the midst of this chaos, both for Abram and for us, the Lord God offers the invitation of covenant. Before chapter 15, which you heard read, comes chapter 12. And in chapter 12 is the first moment when the Lord initiates a relationship with Abram. He promises in that chapter to be Abram's God. And through Abram, he invites all of us to be his people, his children. We are invited to no longer bow down before multiple gods. More gods than sometimes we can count. Trying so hard to find their approval, to find our security in them. We are invited no longer to live as orphans, but to know and experience God as our Father. And along with this invitation in chapter 12, repeated in chapter 15, extended in chapter 17, along with knowing God our Father as an invitation, there are some specific blessings that are mentioned as well. Abraham is promised a new name. Abraham will father a great nation. Abram will possess great influence. He will be a a conduit of blessing to all the nations. He will be a great nation, greater than the sand, the grains of sand, the planets and the stars. Great name, great nation, great influence. I don't know if you noticed the pattern here, but knowing God is our father, for Abram and for us, they're all the things that Abram's been working for so hard on his own. These are all the things that we find ourselves working ourselves to death for on our own. Great name, reputation, great nation, productivity, more children than you can count. Great influence, power. These are all the things that we try to accomplish on our own. But if we know God as our Father, God says, you will receive these things. Now, if you know Abram's story from chapter 12 to getting to chapter 15, Abram is invited into the rhythm of covenant But he continues, despite that invitation, to live the inversion. From chapter 12 to chapter 15, the next two chapters, 13 and 14, Abram's been invited to live in covenant, but he continues to live the inversion. He continues, by his own human effort, to secure provision, safety, and security, and power for himself. Instead of depending on the Lord and going where he sent, Abram goes where everyone knows is the most likely place in the world to prosper. Egypt. It does not go well. When Abram finally returns to the land that God told him to be in the first place, he gets involved in a bit of a power trip and gets caught up in a nasty war. He has to go in and rescue his nephew Lot, who is a prisoner of war, and take back the plunder that has been taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. The invitation of covenant was given in chapter 12, but it's not until 15 that the confirmation of covenant comes if you will, the challenge of covenant. The Lord comes to Abram again, as we heard, and again repeats his invitation into covenant. Abram has still been living the inversion, as we talked about, trying to make things happen, to make life work in his own way, working through different parties. And basically, as God shows up in 15, God is literally saying to Abram, you had enough yet? Are you ready to try it my way? And you heard Abram's response. Abram needs assurances. Abram wants something concrete. And so what we get in chapter 15 is the challenge of covenant expressed through a ritual. You see, back then, a covenant was sealed. It was confirmed when a covenant was cut. Now, the word cut seems like a strange verb to pair with covenant, but it was appropriate. 
In Abram's day, a deal would become binding by cutting animals in half and then walking between the pieces of the animals. I don't know how, where you go when you read this, but it's a bloody, smelly, visceral affair. Imagine going to sign the papers for your home and there's a bunch of animals cut in half that you've got to walk through. But this, vis- this visceral image that, that's very palpable for, for us, it represented something very significant that two becoming one, which is what covenant is all about, does not happen without sacrifice. Two becoming one does not happen without sacrifice. The two parties walk between the halves of the of the pieces, of the animals, the halves, as a sign of the old passing away, of a new relationship, a new start, a new beginning coming to pass. One life emerged by each party dying to themselves, dying to their independence. Each party is committing themselves to each other and to not just themselves. In other words, each party is choosing to die to self in order to live together. The two halves, if you will, if perhaps that image is still disturbing to you, think of those two, those two halves in that corridor as a birth canal to the birth of a new existence. In many ways, it's language that's similar to the language that's used for baptism in the New Testament, of death in order to come to new life. By killing animals and walking between the pieces, the two parties gave their strongest bond to each other. Once covenant was cut, there was no going back. And in that sense, this image that is given to us, this ritual that Abram engages with with God, the picture of these two parties walking between the pieces was also meant to be a picture of what life would be like if the covenant was destroyed. They would die. What happened to those animals being split in half should happen to them. And and again, our, our, our tendency when we hear that is, this is what happens if the covenant's destroyed, is we think penalty. But more what's being reflected here rather than penalty is this is the state of being. Meaning covenant to become one is meant to be so inseparable that to be split apart, for covenant to be split apart, to be torn apart is literally to die. You can't live without the other person anymore. It's impossible to split. To split means you're as dead as these animals. Beloved, in this picture that's gross we have an understanding of grace from a different vantage point. An understanding of grace that's not how we often talk about it. Because here in this picture of God and Abram engaging in the cutting of covenant, we witness grace. Grace in the initiative of a stronger partner, God, inviting a weaker partner, Abram, to become united with him. The greater partner, the Lord, confers upon the lesser partner the right to all access, to be equal partners with him. Beloved, this is grace that God, our Father, the stronger partner, confers upon us the weaker partner, the invitation to become one with him. That God, the stronger, the greater partner, confers upon us the lesser, the weaker partner, the right to become equal partners with him. We become heirs to all that God has. Our identities are tied together. We are adopted into the family. That's the picture we have in Genesis 15. And as we go to Genesis 17, we get to see even more unfolding of what does a life in covenant lived out look like? Because that's the question for us. What does this look like to live a life in covenant? And the very first thing that we see in Genesis 17 is that living a life in covenant means that our identities are shared. We see Abram receive the gift of God's name. Later on, Moses will be told God's name, and you remember it's Yahweh. 
Yahweh is the Lord's name. And in Hebrew, if you don't know this, when the, the name of God is presented, only the consonants are recorded. So Yahweh is Y-H-W-H. The vowels are added in in speech as the text is read out loud. Only the consonants are put down. But what God does here, taking his name Yahweh, is God takes the two H's, the two of the consonants in his name, and he gives each one of each to Abraham, to Abram and Sarai, so that Abram becomes Abraham. And Sarah, Sarai becomes Sarah. God gives part of his name to Abraham and to Sarah. A name change takes place as God's identity and Abram's identity get merged together. Abram has part of God's name. And we're told Abram becomes the father of many nations with this name change. Sarai, by the way, remains. Her name still remains Princess. But the meaning of princess takes on a whole new meaning as she is now part of a covenant invitation to be the princess whose children will mark the rule of heaven's king. A shared identity. In some respects, what we have here is a, a, a creative renaming of humanity. Because in God giving his name to Abraham and to Sarah... God is basically reflecting his image yet again upon our humanity. It's almost as if he's touching that impression, that impression of that handprint by placing the H in Abraham's name and in Sarah's name. But I don't want you to miss this because it's significant. Remember I said covenant is about two becoming one where the identities of the partners are shared. God shows his amazing commitment to the partnership not just in the gift of the letters of his name but also God embraces a new name for himself. From this point on when this God is invoked he will be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We can relate to this understanding of living in covenant is where we have that shared name. There is nothing more exhilarating, can I tell you as a dad, than to have the pride of seeing my name represented by my children. I went last night to the APA show Xanadu, which my daughter is in, and nothing gets me more giddy than before the show is going to start to open up that program to find her name, and it says Emma Twightman. My son likes to play sports, and he's playing for the middle school right now, and he has a thing for scoring touchdowns, and I love it. He has a way of not getting caught. He just can get through everybody, and every time he scores a touchdown, that's Ethan Twightman out there. When we share that name, that pride of saying, that's my kid, God shares his name and says to each one of us, that's my kid. That's my son. That's my daughter. But on the flip side, for us in, as parents, is there anything more devastating? Is there any cross that's harder to bear than the shame of having your name attached to your children in the midst of scandal or betrayal? When they blow it big time, when they let you down, gosh, that can be a pain that cuts so deep, it can be so hard to face that... God forbid, but some of us may have even heard said or said it ourselves as parents to our children, you're no son of mine. You're not my daughter. That connection of a shared name is what covenant is about. The good news is that God our Father 
has all of the pride that we experience when we take joy in having our name attached to our children. But God, our Father, never says to us, you're no son of mine. You're no daughter of mine. What God says, even here in Genesis 17, did you see it? To Abram, he says to Abram, walk before me faithfully and blameless. This is significant because in case you missed chapter 16, which we didn't read, God says to Abram, walk before me faithfully and blameless. And just in one chapter alone, Abram's been anything but faithful and blameless. Abram's been waiting. And he once again gets convinced, God has invited me into covenant, but I'm not supposed to depend on him. I've got to take matters into my own hands. I don't have a kid. I'm not getting any younger here. My wife can't give me a child, and he finds Hagar and has Ishmael and thinks, problem solved. He creates a scandal. He screws up. He betrays the covenant, and yet God says in the next chapter, walk before me blameless and faithful. God imparts to Abram in that declaration a clean slate after a ton of scandal and betrayal. More than this, if you know the story, God promises to care for Hagar and Ishmael, to clean things up. But even more than that, more than covenant being about living in forgiveness, so covenant's embracing our name, but it's also about living in forgiveness, walking blameless before God, God who gives us this forgiveness even though we don't deserve it, we haven't done anything to merit it. God says, walk before me blameless and faithful, but then God also says, I am your shield. He says to Abram, Abram, I am your shield, and and this is significant too because our relationship with God isn't just supposed to be reactive, and many of us have a reactive relationship with God. Our relationship with God, we think, is always about coming back to our Father and looking for forgiveness, looking for security after the fact, but Abram is given the word from God, I am your shield. In fact, God says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. God is saying to Abram and to us, avoid trouble. Avoid scandal and betrayal. Walk faithfully and blamelessly. How am I able to be faithful and blameless when I just screwed up? You can be faithful and blameless by knowing and depending that I am your shield. That I am your safety. That I am your security. That I am your provision. If you're in relationship with me, Abram, you don't have to be afraid. You can know I've got your back. Living in covenant One-on-one with God is embracing our name, our new name, our shared name with God. But it's also living out of the forgiveness of God. Not reactively, not knowing we can go back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I screwed up again. Though we can do that. But instead, living proactively, knowing we don't have to always look for forgiveness as an afterthought. But we can know that God's our shield. That our ability to walk faithfully and blamelessly is by relying upon God as our shield as our security, as our provider. Abram, Abraham, and Sarah are invited and challenged to live in relationship in a way that he hopes and intends for all people to live with him. What we see after chapter 17 is a shift, and it's a shift of a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. As Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah are invited and challenged to relate to God as a friend, as a father. And that's what God wants for us all. God wants us to live in a one-on-one relationship with him reflected through the intimacy of conversation. What comes after chapter 17? It gets pretty dark. 
But the one light in the midst of the darkness is Abraham. And it's, it's a, it merits so much more conversation with us. Abraham in the midst of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham. One man. We see elsewhere in scripture, no one can look upon the face of God and live. And Abraham understands this covenant relationship he has. That he shares this identity with God. That he can walk blameless and faithful. That God is his shield. And Abraham has the guts to intercede for a city that's about to be destroyed. And the most startling part about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is God doesn't say, get out of my way. What do you, what do you know? You, you're a little guy. I'm the creator of the universe. God, as father, listens to Abram. And we can't stay here, but boy, we want to. Changes his mind? Changes his mind? That's the sense of partnership. That's the sense of influence that God wants us to understand is our relationship with him. That's covenant you got to read past 17. you got to read it because here's my... Do we talk to God like Abraham? Do any of us talk to God like Abraham? Because we're invited to. When's the last time you interceded like that? When's the last time you talked to God with that kind of boldness? Because you know God's your dad. And God has said, you can talk to me. Abraham says, don't do this. And God changes his mind. All this talk about covenant, we can see it biblically, but is there anything that we can look at? Because sometimes it's helpful to look in our own lives. Is there anything like this, any shred of covenant living still in our world today? A way that we can understand better what it means to be one-on-one in our relationship with God, what living in covenant looks like. We look around and it's hard to find much, but there is still one thing that we can look to that reflects what living in this kind of covenant with God looks like, and it's marriage. Marriage, as God intended it, is a covenant. A man and a woman come together in covenant. I hope you see the parallels here between what we have with Abraham and God, Abraham and God in marriage. Man and a woman come together in covenant, a relationship of marriage, and they say, we are now one. We are the same family. Our identities are inseparable. Your name is my name. My name is your name. A man and a woman come together in a covenant understanding of marriage and they say, I'm not with you because I'm trying to make sure my backside is covered. I am with you, I'm committing myself to you because we are agreeing to cover each other's backs. If you have to fight for your life, we say in marriage, I will fight by your side. If you are sick, I will be by your side until you're healthy. If I can do anything to make you healthy again, I will lay down my life to make that happen. I will lay down anything, everything, at any time, anywhere, to come to your aid, to provide for you when you are in need. That's the covenant of marriage. That's the vows we take. Because in marriage, in truth, the aim is to make sure not only that every need is met of our partner, but that our partner has more than that. In marriage, we seek to make sure that our partner has what it takes to flourish, to succeed, because we understand it's inseparable, the covenant of marriage. If you succeed, I succeed. If you fail, I fail. When I married Beth, we became one. I didn't fully realize it (laughs) when I submitted to covenant. But it meant when Beth and I became one that I was laying down some of my dreams some of my aims, 
some of my goals, some of my purposes, because as, as a family, we had new ones. And she had to do the same. For almost 20 years, and I hope 20 plus more, we have loved one another in sickness and in health. We have been richer and poorer. We have shared successes and failures. But we have above all submitted to each other to the cause of being a family. Covenant is two becoming one. Together, we too became and are still becoming one. One family. This is a picture of covenant life because covenant life is more than married life. The Bible actually says that marriage is a reflection of what life in covenant is supposed to look like. Marriage is a reflection of what all life in Christ is to be like. And one of the more popular images of our relationship to Christ is Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. But we live in a world where we are losing that reflection. That reflection in marriage, where marriage more and more in our world is being reflected as a contract rather than as a covenant. You know, and I'm going to go a little bit off on my soapbox here. I may pay for it later, but I'm doing it. I'm hearing so much, and it's political season, so it just amps up a little bit. We get so fired up, don't we, about defending marriage. We get just really fired up about defending marriage. We're... And I want to ask us in that defense of marriage, where's our passion about the widening gap between marriage in the eyes of the state and marriage in the eyes of God? And I'm not talking about what you think I'm talking about. Where's our frustration? Where's our passion for the reality of prenups? Where's our, fa- our frustration for the increasing loopholes and easy access to divorce? Where's our frustration that you can literally get married in less than five minutes if you drive to Las Vegas right now? We want to focus on who gets to get married, but we don't want to talk about or get passionate about the disintegration of covenant in marriage. Because covenant marriage, marriage as the Bible defines it, has no prenups. Divorce is not easy, it's hard. And it doesn't take five minutes. It takes a lot longer to cut animals in two and walk through them. In the past, I've asked you, how do you picture God? I asked you to reflect on that. Today, I ask you to almost look at the other side of that question. I ask you to reflect today on how do you understand yourself as a son of God, as a daughter of God? How do you understand yourself as being in Christ? Are you living, are we living in a contractual relationship with God or a covenant relationship with God? Because there's a different kind of conversation between the two orientations. There's a different kind of way of talking to God. Seeing our relationship through a contract lens, we operate like this. If we think our relationship with God's about a contract, we say stuff like this. Okay, what do I have to do to seal the deal with God? Pray a prayer? Okay, check. What, do I, what, do I, what am I going to get out of all this with this relationship with, with God? Okay, some core doctrines that are going to get me to heaven? Check. I'll sign that. What kind of behaviors do I need to exhibit to prove myself in terms of this contract? Okay, do a little outreach? Feed the poor now and then? Go to a nursing home once a month? Check, check, check. Beloved, so many of us, this is the extent of our relationship with God. And it's a contractual relationship. And a contractual relationship is the exact opposite of the kind of relationship that God desires to have with us. God created us in covenant and for covenant. He wants us to be as close as possible. 
As our Father, He wants us to be His children. As Jesus, He comes to us as a bridegroom looking for His bride. God wants to be one-on-one with us. He wants us to take on His name. He wants us to find our security and confidence in Him and in Him alone. He wants us to make Him our home. He wants us to talk to Him as our friend. We live in a world, as I said, where promises are made, but, and they're many, but the lies that are told are even greater. We live at a time when we need fact-checkers in order to know whom to trust. And even then, the truth of the facts depends on the spin. Depends on who's checking them. We exist as a people with a growing conviction that talk is cheap. There's a lot of rhetoric out there. And yes, talk is very often cheap. But beloved, words matter when our Father is speaking. Words matter when it comes from the mouth of our dad. Abraham lived in times no different than ours. He heard a lot of promises in his life. He was used to making a lot of deals. But he was looking for security. He was looking for and hoping for assurances. And when God revealed himself in Abraham's life, he extended an invitation, a promise larger than anything Abraham could have imagined or hoped for. Something greater than the grains of sand on a seashore. Something greater than the stars in the sky. But the Lord offered more than just empty rhetoric. He knew that words were not enough for Abraham and for us, and so his words became flesh. The word became flesh. God our Father took a blood oath to be bound to us, to become one flesh with us, to have his identity inseparably tied to us until death do us part. We don't need fact checkers to confirm the truth of this promise. We only have to look to the cross. But we also need to understand that the cross, the cross is not the starting point where God's sacrifice begins. The cross is not the starting point where God's sacrifice begins. It's the culmination. It's the fulfillment of our Father's promise. If you have your Bible open, go back to Genesis 15. Because there's something we didn't read and something I want you to see. Because it means everything. I told you in, in, in typical covenant ceremonies, in Abram's day, Abraham's day, typical covenant ceremonies, when those animals were split in two, that nasty, smelly mess, both parties walked through that corridor of blood. If you read Genesis 15, if you skip down to the part that Richard didn't read, you will notice something startling, that this covenant between God and Abraham is different. As the animals are sacrificed, as the pieces are laid out, there's only one person who walks through the pieces. And it's God the Father himself. God speaks the promises as he embraces the sacrifice that it will take to make those promises a reality of our lives. The very foundation that the cross is built on is right here in Genesis 15. As our Father walks through this bloody mess that represents our lives apart from him, lives split and torn in two, our God declares long before the cross his willingness to feel our pain and our suffering. As a covenant is being cut, a promise is already being fulfilled. As God our Father gives up a measure of his freedom as he embraces the restriction of being bound to us. And it's a promise that's made complete 
when our Father lays down everything for us by making the sacrifice of his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, always before us is the invitation and challenge of covenant, the offer of walking blameless, forgiveness, the assurance that we have security, that he is our shield, the gift of a new name, the stability and confidence of an identity that does not change, and the promise of all access, that we can approach and talk to God as our friend, as our father. When it comes to the Lord, yes, covenant can be broken, but when it comes to our Father, its essence is still binding. We can deny that God is our Father all we want, but what we see here is He never stops being our Dad. We can deny God is our Father all we want, but He never stops being our Dad. Beloved, today, hearing that promise, reflecting upon how we understand ourselves as sons and daughters of God, children of God, may we live no longer as though we are fatherless. May we understand that we are never forsaken. Amen? Amen.